Go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. We're going to be looking at this psalm for the uh, remainder of our time together. If you didn't grab a bulletin in the back and uh, get notes, I would like to warn you, the sermon is going to have 30 points. So please, grab a bulletin. Um, It's going to help you not get lost. So it's in the back. You should see an insert inside that looks like this. Please grab a bulletin. Again, going to be looking at Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 14. For it was you who created my inward parts... You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we pray that you would illumine our hearts. If your spirit does not... Soften our hearts to the hearing of your word. It will just sound like a clanging gong to our ears. So we ask humbly, Lord, for your help. Help us to consider your word and the truth as speaks. Pray that our hearts would be broken over sin. I pray that we would cherish the grace of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. The case against abortion is complex. It's a controversial subject to talk about. Discussions surrounding biology, theology, and political ideology have made the issue a whirlwind of controversy. So as we began um, our year with four particular topics that we wanted to address to set out the year, uh, we began with God's Word, and we talked about prayer And we've talked about racial equality, and now we are talking about abortion. So why do we, as Christians, why do we as a church dedicate a week of the year to talk about abortion? Well, before we dive into our text this morning, I'd like to give three reasons why we need to address this particular issue. Number one. Because it's still a pressing issue. Since Roe v. Wade in in 1973, people believed that it was going to be the end of the discussion on abortion. It was legalized. It was over. But by the grace of God, the debates have continued to rage on. Yet, since 45 years ago, and the decision by the United States Supreme Court, over 60 million abortions have been performed. 60 million children that have been murdered, and since the new year, that means that over 50,000 lives have already been lost. Number two, because the church is to be equipped to engage cultural issues. When we think about 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 4, it instructs us to wage war against arguments, to demolish arguments arguments, and to take every thought captive to obey 
Christ, which means that we do have to tackle controversial issues. And number three, because abortion has been a dark, shameful elephant in the room for many churches, including our own. According to the Guttmacher Institute, two out of three women who get abortions identify as Christians. One in five identify as evangelical. So that means that over 100,000 abortions last year were performed on Bible-believing, gospel-affirming Christians. There are women in this room who have had abortions. And the guilt, the shame of sin, and the siren of silence has paralyzed the church from revealing sin, addressing sin, and applying the grace of Christ. So my desire for us this morning and this year as we think about this topic is to have a biblical understanding of how abortion opposes the glory of God. There are, abortion and, and this topic can be a difficult one to address. I could state different statistics. I could dive into biology as to how the fetus grows in the womb. I could cite texts like Genesis 25 or David's son and different examples where, where human beings in the womb are considered to be human in the gospel narrative. But what I'd like to do this morning is to specifically hone in on the glory of God. If the chief goal of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever, I would like to show you how abortion inhibits us from the enjoyment of God and how abortion robs Him of His glory. We could talk about how abortion is murder, we could talk about how abortion is sinful, but the primary reason why Christians oppose abortion is not because it's murder, but because it actually infringes upon the glory of God. That is the ultimate reason. It doesn't mean that we don't oppose it because it is murder. We do oppose it because it is murder. But those things are built on the foundation of who God is. If we don't have a good understanding of how the sin of abortion infringes on the glory of God, then we are building a Jenga tower on nothing. God's glory is the foundation upon which we must build. So the main idea this morning that's going to be in your notes is to oppose abortion because it opposes the glory of God. To oppose abortion because it opposes the glory of God. So, we're going to take a look at this in three steps. The first, we're going to look at the attributes of God in Psalm 139. Then we'll look at how abortion as a sin opposes who God is. And thirdly, we will look at Christ in light of God and sin. 
So to begin with number one, that, that God is these ten attributes according to the text. So we'll, we'll go through it quickly. Number one, God is omniscient. God is omniscient. Look, at, look with me at verse 1 of Psalm 139. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all of my ways. God is omniscient, or he's all-knowing. He has searched us and known us. He knows when we sit down and when we stand up, and, and he knows all things. The, the Library of Congress and all of humanity can research and obtain endless amounts of information. Google can continue to aggregate the information of the masses, and it will still be a floppy disk compared to the comprehensive knowledge of God. He knows all things. He is omniscient. Number two, God is eternal. God is eternal. Eternal. Verse 4. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. So before a word is on our tongue, God already knows it. God knows everything. He was, He is, and He is to come. He is not bound by time. He has no beginning. He simply is. Which means that nothing surprises God. He has been, he is, and he will be. Three, he is incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. Verse six, this wondrous, or verse five, you have encircled me, you have placed your hand on me, this wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. So David is reflecting. He's meditating on the attributes of God. He's thinking about his omniscience. And he's saying that this knowledge is beyond him. He's not able to comprehend it. That should be great assurance to a lot of us when thinking about God. If you don't feel like you have a full grasp of who God is, great. Neither does David. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't know him truly. God isn't an enigma in our minds. It's not that we can't know him truly. What this verse is saying is that we can't know God completely. Okay, We can't know God completely. Some of us are still trying to figure out our family members or our spouses. So imagine trying to know God in his entirety. It's beyond us. We can't reach it. Number four, he is omnipresent. He is omnipresent, or he's everywhere. Read with me from verse seven. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there, your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. 
The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. God is everywhere. You can't hide from him. He's present in the furthest expanses of our universe, and he's present here in this room. He's everywhere. Five, he is sustainer, or he sustains us. He is sustainer. Verse 10, or verse 9, if I, if I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. See, God is not just everywhere. He's not just omnipresent. He's also actively sustaining us. His right hand holds us. Colossians 1.17 says that by Christ, by him, all things hold together. He sustains all things. Six, he is creator. He is creator. Verse 13, for it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. God is the one who creates us. He knit us in our mother's womb. Only God can create like this. Another way of seeing God as creator is that God is life. He is life. All life comes from God. We do not just create life by our own power. It is God that does it because God is the source of all life. He is creator. Seven, he is omnipotent. He is omnipotent. That is a fancy word for saying that he can do all things. He can do all things. He can do all things by his own power. Everything on earth happens by God's power. And he empowered life to be able to happen. He's the one who has breathed life into us. To be able to function. He's given us neuron receptors to be able to receive the sound waves that are coming from my voice to your brain to comprehend what I'm saying. He is able to create us and he creates out of nothing. He speaks things into existence. He is omnipotent. Number eight. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Verse 16. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God reigns over all things. For him to be sovereign means that God is king. Not only did he see us when we were formless, he planned all of our days in his book before they even began. He planned out every single day. He planned that you would sit here and listen to this sermon this morning. He reigns over all things. 
Number nine, God is precious. God is precious, or God is good. Verse 17, God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How precious are your, th- your thoughts are to me. God is valuable. David is cherishing God's thoughts. See, God is a delight to him. He delights in God's word. He meditates on God's words. He thinks about God's thoughts. He thinks about who God is and he finds joy. He finds delight. And the reason why he finds delight is because God is good. And when you think about good things, you delight in them. Number 10, God is infinite. God is infinite. Continuing on from verse 17. How vast their sums is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. God is immeasurable. He is the inherent maximum of everything. We might have knowledge, we might have thoughts, but he is knowledge. We might think ourselves to be good people, but he is good. We might compare our sandcastles of knowledge to God and we would be buried in infinite mounds of sand. We would be chewing dirt because of how immense his thoughts are to us. So to recap, God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. God is eternal. God is incomprehensible. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He is the sustainer. He is creator, life itself. He is omnipotent, able to do all things. He is sovereign. He is king. He is precious. And he is infinite. So why did I spend 11 minutes on the attributes of God on a sermon about abortion? Because of verse 14. Read with me. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous. And I know this very well. So many people will read this as, as something great to put on a Hallmark card. A little self-esteem booster. So warm, fuzzy feeling as you read verse 14. You know, God loves me. And he did this for me. And I'm fearfully and wondrously made. But If you read Psalm 139, you realize very quickly that this psalm is not about you. This psalm is not about us. It's about God. The reason why we're remarkably and wondrously made is because God is remarkable and wondrous. Human dignity is not grounded in who God is, uh, not in who we are, sorry, but who God is. That is the grounds on which we find dignity of human life. Which means that when we advocate for life, 
is primarily grounded in who God is. This is not an issue of my opinion versus other people's opinion. This is an issue of how God deems things to be valuable and whether or not what he says is true. Which means to abort a child infringes on God's authority at every level. At every level. So here's what we're going to do. In the the second column in your notes, we're going to go down each of the attributes of God, and I would like to show you how abortion violates and is in rebellion against who God is. Firstly, even though God is omniscient, God does not understand my situation. I wonder if you've ever thought that before. God doesn't understand my situation. Some people on the pro-choice side will argue that I can't defend abortion because I am a man. And I've never been pregnant. And I can assure you, I have not. And they'll say, you know what? You've never been pregnant. And, And to be fair, God the Father hasn't either. So he can't possibly understand where I'm coming from, John. My situation is not understandable. God doesn't know what it's like. So God is not omniscient. Number two, you may think that God's eternal, but, but to, to me, God is dated. God is dated. God just is not progressive enough. I mean, are you really going to get your morals from a book that's several thousand years old? Modern times is so different from before. Can we really say that what God thinks from thousands of years ago applies today? So God is not eternal. He's dated. He's old. He's crusty. Number three, God is angry at me, or God does not understand me. So God is no longer a complex being. You can understand him. I know what God's going to say. He's like an angry father who can't sympathize with the struggles of his kids. You know that he's just going to hit you with a hammer. So there's no point. And what you do then is you take the complexity of God and you simplify him. I can read him and either I'm scared of him or I don't like him. So God is not incomprehensible. Number four, God's omnipresence. You say, I can hide from God. I can hide from God. Someone who's struggling with abortion or or sin can begin to think to themselves, no one has to know. No one has to know. I can get away with this. It'll be one day, I'll come in, I'll get this taken care of, out of sight, out of mind. As though God is not present in the room of the abortion clinic. Number five. God has abandoned me. God has 
abandoned me. I am all alone. No one can help me. This is my problem. Maybe your significant other left you, and so has God. Maybe you feel like you're beyond saving, that God has turned his back on you. So his right hand doesn't hold you anymore. He's like, go. You're by yourself. So God's no longer sustainer. Number six, this is my body. This is my body. This is my body, and this is my life. So I can determine what I do with my body. As though the life that you currently possess was not given to you as a gift. So God is not the creator anymore. We are. And we get to destroy and uncreate as we please. Number seven. I can do what I want. I can do what I want. My way or the highway. Is this the advocacy of the pro-choice movement? That the woman can decide for what she wants? So then you become autonomous or self-lawed or self-regulated. You can decide for yourself what you're going to do. I can choose what I want to do so God is not powerful enough to stop me. He's not omnipotent. Number eight is similar to number seven. No one can tell me what to do. No one can tell me what to do. No one has the authority to tell me what I must do with my life and my body. I am the king over my own life. So God is not sovereign. He's not king. So you reign over yourself. You reign over your body. And you get to decide and decree what will happen. Number nine. God is not as good as blank. Fill it in with whatever you want. God is just, God just isn't as good as my career. God just isn't as good as my boyfriend or my reputation among my family or my reputation at my church. So God isn't good. He's not satisfying enough. Number 10 God is not enough. God's not enough. He isn't capable of pulling me through. He couldn't save me. He's not satisfying. He can't fill the void in my soul. So then God's not infinite. He's not capable of bringing me joy or filling the void in my life. So abortion is in direct opposition to God in every sense. I could continue to list more attributes of God, and we can find that at every single level, abortion as sin opposes God. It's in direct opposition to God. It takes God's authority and attempts to usurp it. So it's no wonder that David states this, From verse 19, read with me. God 
If only you would kill the wicked. You bloodthirsty men, stay away from me, who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Whoa. David rightly captures the disgusting wickedness of sin. And because he understands how sin infects and and perpetrates God's authority and glory, he hates those who do evil. So this means that God hates those who have had abortions. God hates sinners. And if we're honest, then that means that God hates everyone in this room. God hates all of us. I mean, when I was listing out those excuses, did any of those resonate with you? Do you notice some common ground in the way that we think when we approach sin? The reason why we go through similar thought processes when we're engaging in different sin, whether it's abortion, whether it's adultery, whether it's lying, whether it's thievery, is because the root of all sin is unbelief. Is unbelief. Before you engage in murder, before you engage in violence, before you engage in sexual immorality, the primary root problem in our soul is unbelief. When Satan tries to deceive Eve, he tries to get her to believe lies about God. That if you eat from the fruit, you'll become like God. And God doesn't want that to happen. He's threatened by you. What got it? What did Satan attack there? God's omnipotence. Sin is caused by unbelief, which means that we deserve to die because we are the bloodthirsty men. We are the wicked. We are the enemies of God. So what do we do? How do we reconcile bloodthirsty rebellious enemies of God through the person and the work of Christ. This is the gospel. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, this is what we would love to proclaim to you, that Christ did not only know the sinful state of humanity, but he actually took on the very nature of man. He was born of a virgin. He lived A sinless life that we never could. He was never an enemy of God. He never rebelled against God. He didn't have an inkling of unbelief in his soul. And he suffered on a Roman cross by man's hand. And as he hung on the cross, nails through his wrist, 
through his feet, spear in his side, worse than any physical pain, he bore the wrath of God. David asked God to slay the wicked, and God slayed Jesus. He received the punishment that bloodthirsty, rebellious enemies deserved on the cross, and he died and rose from the dead three days later, victorious over sin and death. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? Christ won victory over sin and death, and Christ is the remedy to all sin. To all sin. So let's run it back to the top of the list. Number one, you may think that God doesn't understand you, but Christ understands us. See, God wasn't this transcendent being who just existed separate from the earth and just kind of ruled over it. In fact, he had first-hand experience to the tragic effects of sin. He suffered it for us. Hebrews 4 says that Christ has been tempted in every way that we have, yet without sin. Number two, you may think, That God is dated, but the grace from Christ is eternal and everlasting to us. He doesn't give dated rules and regulations. He gives us a permanent solution to our violations. And this is why we have hope. We have hope beyond our sins in this life. Our old self is wasting away. You want assurance? You get an eternal God to pay an eternal price for our eternal punishment. John Foreman says it well. That you put your hands at redemption's side and his scars are bigger than these doubts of mine. Christ is eternal and his grace is for us. Three, God does the incomprehensible through Christ. I mean, could anyone really think of this story? That God himself becomes man and gives himself up for sinners? That God would pour out his wrath on himself? That was a great mystery of the Old Testament that was revealed in the person of Christ. What an incomprehensible gift we've received. Four, you can try to hide and to run from God, but Christ came to you. Christ comes to us. He meets us where we are. Like the Samaritan woman at the well. He eats with drunks and tax collectors. He doesn't come as a holier-than-thou disposition as a Pharisee looking down on his people, but he comes as a physician, as a doctor, here to heal. Five, God has not abandoned us. Christ has come to save us. He is our hope in every trial. Christ is our assurance. Number six, while we selfishly 
try to claim autonomy for our own selves. Christ lays down his life for us. He lays down his life for us. We try to seize the life that we've been given, the opportunities that we have, and Christ does the reverse. Number seven, while we try to claim power and ability for ourselves, Christ humbled himself. He wasn't after a power grab. Philippians 2 says that though he was, if, though he had the fullness of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Number eight, when we rejected the command of God, Jesus submitted to the will of his Father, even if it meant death on a cross. He said, Not my will but your will be done. He understood the sovereignty of God. He did it in submission to him. Number nine, Christ is the most precious gift that we could ever receive. He's sweeter than convenience. He's sweeter than the greatest pleasures that this life could offer. In fact, the greatest pleasures of our life are designed to point us to Christ. When you drink water, when you eat a really tasty burger, it's supposed to remind you of the goodness of Christ. When you delight with your family, it's supposed to point to the goodness of God. The problem is when we replace God with those things and try to make those things the ultimate joys, we corrupt not only our perception of God, but those good things that God has given us. Begin to expect too much from them. But here's the thing. You can never delight in Christ too much. You can continue to eat and delight and indulge in Christ and His goodness will never run out to you. You'll never get sick of Him. You'll never have enough of of him. In fact, your appetite for him will only grow, which is why, number 10, God is not enough is actually true. He's actually everything. Christ is everything to us. He is all to us. He's not just satisfactory. He is everything. Therefore, There is grace and forgiveness in Christ Jesus. His blood spilled for us cleanses us from all of our sin. Christ forgives those who have had abortions. He forgives the sexually immoral. He forgives liars, idolaters, swindlers. And Paul, after listing all the sins, would say, As such were some of you. All Christians have been forgiven despite the despicableness of our sin. Don't let sin's bitterness overwhelm you. Taste the goodness of Christ. Taste the goodness of Christ. So, some application for us as Christians thinking about the issue of abortion from a gospel-centered lens. I've laid the foundation now. So what are we to do as Christians? 
Number one, fight sin personally. Fight sin personally. Here's, here's a couple, three different ways that you can fight sin personally in your life. Firstly, fight to taste God's goodness every day. If you want to wage war against the princes and principalities of this world, fight to taste God's goodness. Look for moments in your life that you can recognize, train yourself to see God's goodness. And acknowledge it. Verbalize it. That's what we do in our Sunday evenings. We share blessings from the week. We share blessings from the Lord's Day. We, we do this amongst the brothers I'm in accountability with. We're fighting to try to taste the goodness of God. Don't just confess sin. Confess God's goodness. I tasted God's grace today by having this encouraging conversation with this brother or by feeling the sun on my face and rejoicing in a beautiful day. Thomas Watson has said that until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. I would like to take that statement and flip it around. Until Christ is sweet, sin will not be bitter. See, the fight of the Christian against sin is not merely to avoid sin, but to say that Christ is better. And it's like brushing your teeth and then biting into an orange. What you previously thought was sweet suddenly brings terror and bitter and disgustingness into your mouth. That's what it's like when you delight in Christ and then you look at your sin. So fight to taste God's goodness every day. Two, repent of self-righteousness and apathy. Self-righteousness and apathy. Do you have a gracious demeanor when people sin? Or are you eager to slam the hammer of justice? Do you gospelize people in their brokenness when you see it? Do you approach them out of love? Or do you avoid difficult conversations because they're a nuisance to you? I think we can all grow in our humility and our empathy. If one out of five people getting abortions are evangelicals, that means there is a severe depletion of grace in our churches. Number three, educate yourself. Educate yourself. So, I didn't talk about the biology or the biblical defense for abortion specifically head on in the sermon. If you'd like to get more resources, feel free to talk to me afterwards. Here's, here's my call to you. I cannot educate the masses with a comprehensive defense of abortion in 45 minutes. That's just not possible. Right? And, and e- even though I'd love to fill in all the gaps I can, it, it's like playing the game where you're trying to hit, whack the mole. Just more wall, moles pop up. It's like, it's like you're trying to plug a, a leak in, in your sink and then three more leaks show up. Because you try just one issue and then three more come up. So all of us need to have a disposition of wanting to learn and educate ourselves about this particular issue. 
We have resources available to you. Why Pro-Life is sitting in the back on that bookshelf, ready for you to pick up. We have ebooks if you like them. Feel free to talk to me after the service. I would love to send you resources. And read your Bible. Have a particular attention to the way that God treats children and the way that he treats people in the womb. Equip yourself so that you might take every thought captive to Christ and to bring him glory. Number two, fight sin. Well, those are the three points for fighting sin personally. Now, fight sin corporately. Fight sin corporately. So again, another three points. One, repent of self-righteousness. Repent of self-righteousness. I wonder, for any of us, if we get caught up in thinking about how our culture is being corrupted without taking a look at ourselves. To say that our world is going to hell in a handbasket. Do we ever take the disposition of Daniel? Even though he's faithful to God, even though he's praying to God, and Israel has abandoned him, that he asks God to forgive us for our sins, not their sins, our sins. Not the culture sins, but our sins. Not not America, godless, idolatrous America, but actually all of us together, do we repent? Two, pray for our country to change. I mean, do as a church, do we pray about this issue? I don't think it's difficult to be Christian and say that you're pro-life in a church environment. I think the vast majority of Christians are pro-life, and it's right, because it's in the Word. It's not a difficult stance to take in this room. But do we pray about this issue? Do we do things about this issue? Does our hearts break in the loss of human life? Or do we get riled up in the defense of our position? We're going to pray about abortion tonight in our prayer meetings. I'd like to invite you to come and and join us. We'll repent together after a sermon. Number three, cultivate a community of grace where sin can be confessed and grace can be applied. Really quickly, if you're, if you're a non-Christian, that would be our desire for you, to taste the grace of Christ. You might be overwhelmed by your sin. We would like you to know that Christ has paid it all. That's what we sang earlier. Right, we would love for you to repent, to turn to Christ, to taste the sweetness of Christ. If you'd like to learn more about Jesus, feel free to talk to me after the service. I'll be in the back or to any of the members around you. We would love, love, love to talk to you about Jesus. But for us as a church family, we need to cultivate a community of grace where sin can be confessed and grace can be applied. How would our church deal with a pregnancy out of wedlock? How would our church deal with it? How would we deal with a woman confessing to have had an abortion? 
Do you understand what's happening for these one out of five women that are participating in this? They're believing that the church will be so terrifying and hate-filled or judgmental towards them that they would rather kill a child than bear with the consequences that can happen. Because they're afraid of judgment more than they're looking forward to grace. God forbid that we brand brothers and sisters in Christ with a scarlet A for abortion. Christ has washed us white as snow. We are all as scarlet. And Christ has washed us white as snow. And a quick word to those of you who, who have struggled with abortions or, or have participated and carry that weight with you. Help us as a church. Help us to grow, to cry with you, to mourn with you, to celebrate the grace in Christ with you. Those who have been forgiven much love much. And, and our church needs help in growing in this. So I would encourage all of us to be open with our sin. None of us in this room are sinless. And because Christ has done everything for us, we can take the disposition of the Samaritan woman who boldly barges into her town and says, He knew everything about me. He knew that I slept with multiple men. And he has forgiven me. Show me grace. What a testament to the work of Christ. If we can be open with our sin and celebrate the riches of his grace. Amen. And lastly, fight sin publicly. Fight sin publicly. What I'd like to encourage you to do is to do three things. Firstly, to advocate against abortion. To advocate against abortion. But, and, and the reason why I put this last is because if we become enraged at sin without understanding the graciousness of Christ, then we can begin to advocate for abortion with a Christless disposition. But when we understand the gospel, we actually have the tools to be able to help these women. Yes, they need help. But what they need more than whatever practical solutions that they have is that they need Christ. And now that we have a proper understanding of how God thinks of abortion, how Christ has given the solution to sin, we can advocate against abortion strongly firmly and graciously. There are pregnancy centers that are performing abortions in this city. I mean, we go to Chick-fil-A, some of the men and, and those of us who go Wednesday morning, we, we go to the Chick-fil-A in Downey on Firestone. Right next to it, there's a Planned Parenthood. Are we praying for the souls that inquire there? Be aware of what is happening in our area. Pray for the souls that walk in there. Pray that pregnancy crisis centers who advocate for life 
will be equipped to serve. Get involved. And, and we're not trying to say a cookie-cutter way that we can do this. We, we have commands, and, and all of us have different giftings and opportunities, and I would encourage you to be creative, to be thoughtful. How can you help in this situation? It's not just advocating against abortion. There's women that need help. There's women that need counseling. There's different economic situations that we could be helping with and assisting in. We could be involved in the city and helping single parents or other people that are struggling with this and viewing abortion as a legitimate alternative. So advocate against abortion. Two, consider fostering or adoption. Consider fostering or adoption. I am so encouraged and amazed when I look at foster parents or parents that adopt children because there are fewer, more practical examples of what God has done to us than those who foster and adopt children. See, God did not abort his rebellious enemies. Instead, he adopted us into the family of God. And one of the most powerful ways that we can show the goodness of Christ in our society is by exemplifying that, by caring for children that have needs. You know, when when the pro-choice people say that there are many children without families and without homes, they're right. That is a legitimate problem in our society. And we we can help. We have the resources. We have the opportunities to help. Consider exemplifying the grace and love of God through fostering and adoption. And lastly, share the gospel with the broken. Share the gospel with the broken. Do you know how many people believe that they're beyond saving? Do you know how many people get abortions and regret it and carry that weight with them every day? Or I've had multiple different types of sin in their life and they think that they're unforgivable. We need to have the graciousness to be able to share the gospel with everyone. And you've got to understand that the most powerful pro-life position is the Christian one. When we understand and we fear God, we can advocate for this the best. And when we share the gospel with broken, hurting people, that's how you bring revolution to a society. That's how you bring revival to a culture, is when you engage them with the gospel. So advocate against abortion, consider fostering and adoption, and share the gospel with the broken. There is grace for those who have sinned. And it's found in Christ. And because Christ has died and forgiven us of our, our intense rebellion and violation of his law, we can joyfully go forward and advocate for righteousness in our societies, in our homes, in our churches, and with our own lives because we have freedom to do this in Christ. So we could trust him in the midst of the great sins of our culture 
and we can fight with vigor, trusting and hoping in the day where Christ comes and makes all things new. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for the mass genocide of the unborn. We are guilty. We have every reason to receive your judgment and condemnation, rightfully so, for our sins. Forgive us for our apathy, indifference, not thinking about this issue, not thinking about hurting people. Forgive us for our self-righteousness. Forgive us for our inactivity. Thinking that for whatever reason, that our lives are more important than helping those with this issue. Forgive us for not being gracious with others that sin against us. Forgive us for not readily applying the grace of Christ. Forgive us for not taking our own sins seriously. God, would you forgive our country for allowing this terrible sin to infect our society? God, we ask that you would have mercy on us, have mercy on Bethany Baptist Church, have mercy on the city of Bellflower, and have mercy on our country. We ask that you would bring a movement to right this terrible wrong. And Lord, we long for the day that you will come back and make all things right. In the meantime, we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.